Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The CFPB has been under a lot of scrutiny recently. Mick Mulvaney came in as the new head. The former head was pushed out. And this has become a sort of fertile ground, I suppose you should say, uh, for debate around Consumer uh, Financial Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you. There you go. Here, uh, to, to come on in and, and weigh in on this is Todd Zawicki, professor of law at the George Mason University School of Law. He joins us from Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a great to be with you. So, uh, Todd, you wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention, where you basically were saying uh, that it is good for the CFPB to be loosening up on some of its restrictions and that will actually help uh, the economy and consumers. Can you just sort of give us the broad brush of, of your argument? Sure. There's the, the, the big question for CFPB is it's had a very controversial structure, as you know. It's been under court litigation for a while here, and we're still waiting to see whether it's going to go to the Supreme Court or not. So setting that aside, I think that the interesting question going forward then is what does a Trump CFPB look like compared to what we've seen during the Obama administration when Richard Cordray uh, was the head of the CFPB, and Cordray actually uh, left in in November and announced he was running for the governorship of Ohio. And so that's what's kind of put everything into the air. And when you look back over the past few years, I think it's really a, uh, a story of um, uh, unintended consequences, which is I actually agree with the idea of streamlining and sort of uh, creating one place for consumer financial protection in the federal government. That's based on both studying and also my experience at the Federal Trade Commission. But I think that what we've seen over the past few years is while consumer protection is very essential, while it can be good for not only consumers, but also lenders, but and also the economy, by giving people confidence to be able to, uh, to, to borrow, to be able to get access to the products they need. At the same time, over the past few years, I think maybe the pendulum swung a little too far in one direction, and not just so much too much regulation, but regulation that I think wasn't very economically informed um, and ended up restricting access to mortgages, restricting access to credit cards, uh, and in particular hurting low-income consumers and middle-class consumers the most. Uh, Professor Zawicki, uh, do you agree that the CFPB dropped investigations into payday lenders that were charging up to 900% on loans? Well, did they? Do I agree with it? Yeah, I mean, you, you agree that that happened. That, oh, of course, yes. They, okay. Uh, they obviously dropped those investigations, uh, and uh, I don't know anything more about why they did or did not. Okay. Um, All right, I just want to, just so we're playing with the same facts here. Yep. Now, the CFPB also decided, as part of this, to drop an investigation into a company called World Acceptance Corp. They're based right. in Greenville, South Carolina. You know about this. They yep. happened to offer, they, they uh, gave $45,000 to Mr. Mulvaney during his time as a lawmaker. Um, do you think that it makes sense to have someone who has accepted money running the organization from the federal government's point of view that is supposed to be a fair and impartial uh, overseer 
Uh, well, obviously, Mr. Mulvaney is no longer in Congress, um, and it's no, no. But he's the, running the, the CFPB. Of, yeah, I mean, what we have. I mean, what we. You know, you know, obviously. I mean, it's it's up to the president to appoint, right, uh, Richard? No, no. But Ford I'm asking Ray, you: Do yeah, you think I'm, it makes but, sense to have someone running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who, when he was a lawmaker? accepted, and that was just from the one company, but the estimate is that he accepted about $63,000 uh, yeah, in think, total. Yeah, personally, I think that, uh, uh, that, I, that I think that, right, obviously, Mick Mulvaney is appropriately appointed. I think he's doing an excellent job. I think that to the extent that the decisions made by any president to appoint a politician, these sort of issues arise. So, yeah. for example, Richard Cordray was appointed after being attorney general of Ohio. He accepted a lot of money during that time from trial lawyers when he ran for office, and now he's running for governor, and he's accepting money from trial lawyers and other people who have interest uh, before right. the CFPB. I think to the extent that the decision is made to appoint somebody who's been in politics, that's Partly what's what's going to happen, right? Uh, and, you know, and it's the same way with Elizabeth Warren or anybody else. And so I think, you know, that's what the democratic process right. is, is for. And, uh, and I'm not going to second-guess that decision, and I have no inside knowledge as to why those investigations were opened in the first place or closed in the second place. Well, Todd, I want to get into the concept of payday lending, because I think that mm -hmm. the CFPB under Rob Cordray was uh, pretty much uh, not against it, but but they, they took a pretty harsh stance with uh, these lenders, basically, that uh, agreed to accept someone's paycheck and charge them high interest rates. Um, you're arguing that they can be helpful for uh, lower and middle uh, income Families, can you explain that? Sure. Yeah, and I and you know what's going on with payday loans now is 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 pretty well known, and it's you know one of those difficult trade offs that's that's hard in life, which is people who use payday loans are people who don't have access to better credit products. They're people who either don't have credit cards or maxed out on their credit cards. They've got poor credit, um, and the evidence is pretty clear that people who use it use it to deal with pressing expenses in life, mortgage, uh, insurance payments, utilities, that sort of thing. And so what we have is a situation in which we've got people with limited choices trying to do the best, uh, best they can. And I think there's two things that can draw from that, which is one is when we've got people already have limited choices, we should be very careful about denying them the choices that they already make. So, for example, what we know is that where payday lending is banned, by and large, uh, a lot of those people end up using bank overdraft protection, which is often more expensive, or pawn shops, uh, which are, you know, force them to part with uh, personal goods that they, that they may need. I think the way to think about it is to look at why is it that what, what is shutting off access from people to better credit products, whether it's bank accounts, whether it's um, uh, credit cards. And that's what I think is the, you know, the, the unfortunate consequences that have happened over the past few years, which is because of Dodd-Frank, because of some other regulations, people in the lower income spectrum have found it more difficult to get credit cards. They've lost access to bank accounts. They found it more difficult to get mortgages. And I think that's where 
focusing on uh, financial inclusion and respecting people's uh, uh, ability to choose for themselves, I think is something that's kind of been lost in the shuffle and I think should be weighed more in the balance going forward. We got to leave it there. Todd Zawicki is a professor of law at George Mason University School of Law based in Fairfax, Virginia. Let's bring in Brooke Sutherland now, our uh, mergers and acquisitions columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. You can follow Brooke on Twitter at BLSuth, S-U-T-H. I imagine that's just short (laughs) for Sutherland. Indeed. Um, uh, All right, so BLSuth, what is this about the U.S. government issuing an interim order to block an investor meeting? And this has to do with the bid by Broadcom to buy Qualcomm for more than $100. Ten billion dollars. Yes, and so Cepheus, uh, which is the U.S. regulatory body that's charged with reviewing deals for national security risks, says they want to take a look at this before Qualcomm's annual meeting. That meeting was supposed to take place on Tuesday. It will now be delayed for up to thirty days while Cepheus reviews this deal. And the reason why they're sort of intervening now, and and personally, I think it makes sense, is there was some concern about what type of message it might send or what sort of precedent it would send if Cepheus did not look at this deal. Because Broadcom is a Singapore-based company, and it's trying to move its location to the U.S., but it's waging this proxy fight as a means of hopefully getting board candidates on there that are more favorable to its takeover bid. So some U.S. lawmakers have said, could there be copycats who would look at what it's done and maybe think about a proxy fight as a way to gain effective control of a U- over a U.S. company without ever having to go through a CFIUS review, because typically CFIUS reviews only happen when there's an actual deal. Well, Brooke, you know, it's interesting because I believe that Qualcomm requested this review, no? Well, so uh, there's been some back and forth on that. So that is what Broadcom said. Qualcomm is out with a statement, I think, uh, five minutes ago saying that Broadcom has, you know, given two written, uh, you know, submissions to CFIUS. They've been engaged with the regulatory agency for several weeks. So the surprise element of this, as it was conveyed by Broadcom, may not entirely be accurate. Well, the reason why I ask is because I'm wondering how much this further sours relations between the two companies. If there was some kind of uh, encouragement, shall I say, from Qualcomm's side to have Cepheus come in and add some pressure. Sure. I, I'm skeptical how much encouragement Qualcomm actually gave in this. Um, you know, there's been numerous reports from from us and from other news organizations that CFIUS members were already concerned. So I don't know if this just nudged them along the path that they were already on. But I mean, look, there's no love lost between these two companies. And that's not unusual in a hostile takeover situation. I always laugh at these because you see these crazy press releases where they're calling each other liars and all this back and forth stuff. And then if a deal ever gets announced, it's like nothing's ever happened and they're best friends. But um, Look, I you know, I think that Qualcomm you know, has obviously been very resistant to this idea with Broadcom and they've made some valid points about their concerns and Broadcom has really sort of been unbending and unwilling to sort of meet Qualcomm in the middle or give any real sort of details, um, especially along the lines of antitrust risks. Isn't Singapore an ally of the United States? It is, but you know, it's still a foreign entity. So no, no, no. I understand that, but I mean, let's just—I mean, but I mean, Singapore is an ally of the United States. It is, yes. 
Broadcom is headquartered in Singapore. They want to move to the United States and establish their domicile here in the U.S. Why, other than the price of the deal, would this really be an issue? And why now? So Broadcom um, is sort of known for being a cost cutter, and it's known for financial engineering, for lack of a better word. And so I think the concern among U.S. lawmakers is that Broadcom would come in and significantly cut back R&D costs at, at Qualcomm. They've sort of alluded to this idea of maybe winding down Qualcomm's licensing business. If you remember, that's the or business that's given them- Or, or selling it. Or selling it, it but that, and that's the one that's given them sort of all these issues with, with Apple. But that not that a strategic business decision? I mean, how does that end up being a sort of U.S. political security decision? Yeah, so what I was getting to is if you're cutting all of these costs, what the U.S. is concerned about is that then- hamstrings Qualcomm in this race for 5G technology. This is the next front. What the U.S. does not want to happen is Huawei is the other big leader in this technology. They do not want Huawei to have a virtual lock on 5G. Huawei is a Chinese company. The U.S. wants to be a player in this. Qualcomm's really one of its better bets. So they're wary of sort of giving control over that technology, over this company to you know, as of now, a foreign buyer that that has sort of a reputation for for cutting costs. Well, I'm sure that the saga will end very quickly and neatly, so uh, we'll never talk about it again. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we will be talking about it again. Hashtag sarcasm. Uh, Bloomberg <laughs> M&A and Industrials columnist uh, with Gadfly, and she's been incredibly busy. She writes fabulous columns. Uh, check them out online, and uh, you can see her on TV, and she'll be back. Does government spending discourage work? Here to help us understand this topic is Edward Lazier. He is an economist and he is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, formerly chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, from 2006 to 2009, and uh, as chairman, chief economic advisor to President George W. Bush. Ed Lazier, thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, maybe just speak a little bit about this uh, notion that government spending discourages work. And uh, I offer that it's really in the context of a recent op-ed piece that was penned and published in the Wall Street Journal. Sure. Uh, Well, the basic idea is this. Spending uh, by itself doesn't discourage work, but the problem is that the more we spend, the more we have to tax. That's going to be true whether we tax now or whether we borrow and tax later. And taxes reduce capital formation and work. So the problem is that if we spend a lot, we're going to tax a lot. And if we tax a lot, we're going to put uh, disincentive effects on both capital formation and work. The easiest way to see this is that if you look at the data across, say, the G7 countries, um, I I looked at it across all OECD countries, which is a larger group than the G7, but the G7 are the big ones. And if you look at the big ones, what you see is those countries that have high tax rates also tend to have uh, much lower work hours. And that takes two forms. One is individuals work less per week, given that they're working. But the main effect uh, is that individuals are less likely to participate in the labor market. So if you look at the United States versus, say, France, uh, the French work about 30% less than we do per person in the working age population. Uh, Professor Lazier, I think it's interesting the way that you phrase it, which is uh, that spending 
uh, doesn't necessarily doesn't encourage people to work more. But isn't this really about the budget deficit? Isn't this really about uh, sort of the need to plug some kind of gap in the financial uh, situation of a nation? Yeah, so so the way I think the easiest way to see it, because it, it is a little surprising that you know in some sense deficits don't matter. Uh, it's not so much that deficits don't matter; it's that once we take spending into account, whether you finance that now or whether you finance it later, is kind of a second order effect. The easiest way to think about that is, you know, suppose someone goes out and buys a uh, home entertainment system by spending their entire month's salary on it. Question is, are they better off by paying for that now and depleting their entire uh, earnings, or are they better off borrowing and, and, say, and paying it off over time? It's not so obvious which one's better. What is obvious is they probably shouldn't have bought the thing in the first place. Well, the, and, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. The reason why I, I was making that distinction is because when uh, the uh, Congress members who were passing the tax plan were arguing for it, they said, look, uh, we want a smaller deficit. We want less spending. Yes, we're going to do this tax plan that's going to increase the deficit substantially. We just now need to go cut spending. And it was sort of this artificial distinction between spending and not collecting as much money. But you think it's, it's, a, it's a real distinction. Well, I, no, I think I, I, let's put it this way. I think uh, th- there are uh, misstatements on both sides. So uh, the Democrats who were saying, oh, gee, you know, this is terrible because we're increasing the deficit, um, probably didn't have that quite right, because it's not so much the fact that the deficit went up uh, when we cut taxes. Again, that's not great, but that's kind of a, a minor consideration. Uh, but on the other side, the Republicans also didn't have it quite right, because Cutting taxes by itself right now without also cutting spending means that in the long run, growth is not going to continue to be sustained. The reason that we get growth out of the current tax bill is because it is a plan that reduced the, cut, reduced the taxes on capital. And almost all economists, on, again, on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, agree that taxes on capital are the, are the ones that are the most harmful to economic growth because capital can move. But neither side really had it quite right. So the problem is, unless we get spending under control, we're still going to have to tax to pay for that spending, either in the long run or the short run, and that will affect both work and, uh, and investment incentives. Ed Lazier, can I turn your attention to tariff wars and particularly <laughs> the president's effort to impose tariffs on imported steel and aluminum? What's your response? Well, I'm not an admirer of that policy. I, I uh, have never thought that uh, getting involved in tariffs is a good idea, even from the point of view of uh, the country that imposes the tariffs itself without any repercussions from other countries. So I don't think that there's going to be much of an effect, much of an, a positive, uh, positive effect, even on the industries directly affected, like steel. Uh, but certainly other industries that use steel as an input will be adversely affected. So on net, this is a as far as I'm concerned, this is a loser. Uh, it's just not a good idea to do it, even if there were not a trade war to follow. And of course, uh, you know, other countries are threatening that they are going to retaliate. If that is going to happen, what do you perceive the effect will be on economic growth in the United States? 
Well, I think it'll be negative. I, I do think that the uh, the reaction, and I as I, I always hate to outguess the market, but obviously the market's reaction was pretty negative to this thing. Um, I, I don't think that the effect on economic growth will be as pronounced as uh, as it appears right now from the uh, dramatic movements in the market. There will be a negative effect, but I don't think it'll be that large. Uh, we do have a precedent on this. Uh, the guy I served, uh, President Bush, uh, of course, imposed steel tariffs early in his term, and uh, that was followed by you know a, a few years of pretty good growth. Now, of course, he did remove those tariffs a bit later, so uh, one can argue that uh, President Trump will have the same opportunity. Uh, but uh, it was not that detrimental, yeah. even in the short run. Edward Lazier, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really uh, interesting ideas. Edward Lazier, labor economist and professor at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, coming to us from Palo Alto, California. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. The voters in Italy have had their say, and uh, it has actually produced a, uh, a bit of a muddled result, although populist Five Star and the League are vying for power right now. Here to help us understand what's going on in Italy is uh, Dan Leafgreen. He is our Milan bureau chief for Bloomberg. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Tell us, what are, the, what are the election results and what do they mean? Well, the, uh, the election results show basically that um, there's a hung parliament. Which, which was expected. The, the, the polls um, before a blackout, 15-day blackout period, um, showed that that was likely. I'd say that there are two surprises. Um, one is the, you know, the, the strength, the increase in popularity of the five-star uh, anti-establishment party. And I think the surprising um, showing by the uh, Populist League, um, which is part of Silvio Berlusconi's alliance, um, they actually outpolled uh, Berlusconi's Forza Italia party. And I don't think anyone uh, had predicted that. Dan, as we head into what will inevitably be weeks, uh, possibly longer, of negotiations as Italy tries to create a government, can you just explain to us how does this all work? How does their government work? Because there's 600 or more members and they have to agree on some kind of coalition to make it work. Yes, it, it's a, um, not surprising. It's a complicated process. But um, on the upside, Italy has done this before. Uh, only five years ago in the previous national election, there was a similar result. And it took about two months to put together a government. This time, again, the Italian president um, really is the key figure. There are a number of bureaucratic things uh, that have to occur over over the coming weeks. Um, that is, they actually have to swear in the new parliament. They have to elect the two speakers in the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house, and, and then the president of the, of the Senate. Then the Italian president will actually start formal talks with those leaders about trying to find a solution. He basically gives a mandate. He picks uh, someone to try and form a government. Um, so all of that, probably that, that preliminary bureaucratic um, steps, those will probably take about three weeks to a month um, before the Italian president actually asks someone to form a government. 
Can you tell us about the Five Star Movement? Who is Gian Roberto Casaleggio and his uh, son, David? Yes. Um, basically, um, Casaleggio was who, who passed away um, about a year ago, I believe, um, and then his son sort of took took over um, at the, were, were the inspirations, if you will, of this movement that started, you know, as a, as a big internet, um, you know, populist following, um, without a particular ideology, um, picking up, you know, disenchanted voters from both, you know, the left, right, and and center. Um, they chose uh, for this election as their prime minister candidate, uh, Luigi Di Maio, a very young, early 30s um, guy without any government experience and likes to wear a suit and tie, uh, you know, casting a very, you know, serious business-like image, if you will, um, as as their candidate. Um, the problem is, while they improved on their performance, you know, from five years ago, uh, years ago and got close to 32% of the vote, um, they still don't have a majority. And hence, uh, we're in this situation of political gridlock again. So, uh, Dan, you know, Berlusconi is known as the comeback kid, and it was sort of shocking to see him reemerge on the scene after mm. being banned from politics for a number of years. Uh, but it seems like we have seen that he is not as resilient as he had been in the past. At least that, that seemed to be the message sent by voters, no? Um, true. For me, that was the biggest surprise of this vote. Um, I think everyone was expecting that Five Star would be the biggest single, um, you know, most popular party. But I, um, no one, I don't think, had forecast that Berlusconi's party would actually come in second place in in his uh, alliance there. Um, you know, he just he invested so much time in this. You know, obviously having the advantage of owning some commercial television networks in Italy. You know, he was campaigning. Um, very strongly, the age of 82. He had, you know, heart issues last year, um, and he was literally, you know, all over the map, going from from north to south. An experienced campaigner. Again, um, a, a bit of a surprise that he ended up only as sort of a junior partner in this alliance that he's um, that he put together. Dan Leifgren, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear from you again as we follow uh, the weeks or longer uh, negotiations for Italy to form a government. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.